Showtime! This week on With a Hyphen, we're discussing Amazing Spider-Man issue number one, Fantastic Four annual number one, but just the backup story with Spider-Man, and Amazing Spider-Man issue number two. Some quick things before we get into talking about the issues themselves. I just want to say thank you all for the love on the first episode talking about Amazing Fantasy 15. We got good feedback on Twitter, and we got some love on all the platforms that it's on. I was looking at the numbers, and I thought they were good. I don't know what good podcast numbers are, but they look good to me, and, you know, that's enough for me. I also want to do a quick thank you and shout out to Ghoul Designs over on Twitter. That's G-O-O-L Designs. They designed our new logos that we have over on all the platforms, if you look, the with a hyphen logo, as well as the a Spider-Man comic book podcast. They put that together for me. Go commission them for different stuff. They do graphic design. They do art commissions, all kinds of stuff. They do great work. Go check them out. But without further ado, let's get into episode two of With a Hyphen, starting off with Amazing Spider-Man number one. Here comes Spidey! So we're starting off this week with Amazing Spider-Man number one, of course. And the interesting thing about this book, and I was looking at, they do this a couple times in the early books, where a single issue will have multiple stories. So for this one, it was Spider-Man, and the other one was like The Wrath of the Chameleon or something like that. I should have written it down, but I didn't. So that's just like something I wanted to put out there is that there are multiple stories in some early issues this one being one of them and the title uses spider-man with a hyphen but the book itself doesn't use a hyphen which as you know here at with a hyphen we know when you forget the hyphen let's go over some of the notes i put real quick which is of course first story was written by stanley art by ditko colors by gold uh stan goldberg i mentioned him last time and letters were done by John D'Agostino, if I wrote that down correctly. And then everything is the same for the Chameleon story, but the only difference is the letters were done by John Duffy. There's no real crazy um, facts or info about this issue, really. The book, though, does contain the first appearance of some characters we would come to know and love. J. Jonah Jameson, of course, as well as the Chameleon. And I think it's interesting that the chameleon is kind of Spider-Man's first villain. There's something funny about that to me because when I think of Spider-Man's roster, right? Chameleon, not very high up there. He's a villain you see every once in a while. You think Goblin, you think Ock, Hobgoblin, Vulture, Sandman, Craven. Chameleon's like, I would argue Chameleon doesn't even make top 10 on a good day sometimes. That's, That's my own opinion, I suppose. Let's get into the issue itself. Something that I thought was very interesting immediately in this book, right? And I do want to point out that, and I mentioned this in the last episode, I believe, is that, you know, enough people wrote in that they loved it and whatnot, and the editors loved it, so they made another book, right? They ma- they gave him his own book. They mentioned that in the book, that like, oh, you guys gave Spider-Man so much love, we're giving him his own book, which I do like that they put that in there, but there's an immediate difference between AF-15 Spider-Man story and this one. Because in AF-15, he's he's well-liked by the public. Like, people are like, oh, this dude's fucking cool. He can shoot webbing? What? He's like a spider guy. A spider man, one might say. But on the first splash, like, first page, splash page of this issue, they're calling him a freak, a menace, all that stuff. Like, immediately, they're like, this guy is not good. And I'm like, what the fuck happened? What happened? 
but it's kind of like a tease for the issue. Like it threw me off, but it's a tease for the story you're about to read, which in the issue, in the first story, the egg story, Spider-Man, you find out that J. Jonah Jameson is going around telling people that Spider-Man is a menace. He's like, this guy, he's doing these things, blah, blah, blah. And Spidey in this issue is like, I'm going to use my powers to make money because he, he runs through AF-15 again. He's like, Uncle Ben is dead. We don't have a ton of money, you know? So Peter's like, well, I am going to use my powers to make money like I did before. But he can't because they write the check out to Spider-Man. That's an issue he has. But Jonah is like, he's just going on this whole thing. He, he is like shown typing up an article and he's like, I'm going to ruin Spider-Man. He'll see. And this issue, this, this story also introduces John Jameson, who would come to be, what is it, Man-Wolf? I believe, but he's an astronaut, right? And he's J. Jonah's son. And this story has Spider-Man rescue him. Like, despite the fact that Jonah is being such a dick to him, he still rescues John because it's the right thing to do. Like, this is the first time we really see Peter do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. Because in AF-15, his story is more like, he fucked up and he went after the robber that killed his uncle because he fucked up and it was his fault, you know? So this is really Spider-Man's first hero moment because i would argue in af-15 he isn't really a hero you know he's just a dumb kid with powers and then they decided let's make him a hero which i think was a good decision i think it definitely better carries the book of course a hero book at that time was gonna sell no matter what i i honestly don't have a ton to say about the first story about the first story in the issue i mean like when when spidey rescues John, Jonah uses it as an excuse to be more of a dick to Spider-Man. He's like, he was trying to steal the spotlight from my son, the astronaut. You know, he's, he's, a, he's a dick about it for like, honestly, no real reason. And he even says in his speech at the end that Spider-Man has set the space program back by weeks. I'm like, by weeks? Dude, that's like, no well, at first I thought that's nothing, right? But then I remember this book came out in the middle of the fucking Cold War. This, this book came out in 63. Right? We're like, space program's going. The commies are beating us, bro. We gotta, we gotta catch up. So I guess setting it back by weeks would be a major deal back then. But when I first read that, I was like, by weeks? Dude, we can barely get a man on the moon now, much less into space. So with the context of when the book came out, it made it make more sense. And we'll talk more about context of the book when we get into story two of this issue. But before we get to story two, I want to discuss some of the cool things that were kind of in this issue, of course, art was amazing as usual. Ditko did his amazing body work. He always has great poses. But I really liked how they introduced a lot of the stuff that Spider-Man would go to use as, like, kind of signature things. Web parachute. He used the web to slingshot himself. Like, they show you that, like, he is creative with his powers and with his gadgets. Which, at this point, is just the web shooters. But he's, he's creative with them, which I really like. I like that that is a thing from the get-go. Because he's a kid, right? He's going to be creative with it, you know? He's going he's gonna to think outside the box with it. Which is something that I really appreciated about this issue, that they showed that. Like I said, art was good. Uh, story was solid enough. I enjoyed it. I don't think it would have worked as a full issue story, so I understand why they did an A and a B plot for this. Because I don't think the second story would have done much either as a full issue, which we'll get into that now, is the chameleon story. That part of the issue starts off with Spidey being like, all right, I gotta make money somehow still. 
people aren't super into me at the moment, but I can, I can make money, right? And he has money troubles. He needs the money because of stuff with Aunt May and all that. Because he's having issue, you know, cashing the checks and can't book a gig or anything. His response is, I'm going to go audition for the Fantastic Four. Those guys live in a nice-ass penthouse suite. I am going to make some money working with the Fantastic Four, okay? That's his bright idea. Issue is, he can't get into their base because the door in is locked. So what does he do? He breaks in the fucking window. He's like, you know what I'm going to do? You know how I'm going to get these guys to see how awesome I am? I'm going to break into their house. Okay? Sure? So Spidey breaks in. They know he's coming because their alarms get set off. And they trap him. They trap him in, like, it's described as, like, a plexiglass case. But he just punches right out of it because it's plexiglass and he's, he's fucking Spider-Man. He can punch people's jaws off if he wanted to. But he, I think he literally says, I have the proportional strength of a spider. You think that's going to stop me? Which, what a weird thing to say, I guess. But also makes sense. It's Spider-Man. So he, he fights the Fantastic Four. Which, by the way, this is also the first time we see him use his spider sense. This story with the chameleon in this issue uses the spider sense a couple times in really cool ways that I like. But also in ways that I don't think it gets used later on. So, he detects Sue while she's invisible, which at this point she's still called Invisible Girl. And he detects her so he's able to fight back against her. But later on, he uses his spider sense to, like, detect people in the dark that aren't really posing a threat to him. They're running away. So that's one of those things where it's like, I don't think that's really a thing anymore. They, the chameleon does use the frequency of his spider sense to communicate with him, which is a thing I believe they do do later on. I think the spider tracers in some stories, like cartoons, movies, comics, in, in one of those scenarios are tuned into the frequency of his spider sense so he can hear them where they are, if I'm remembering that correctly. But Chameleon's plan in this book is, it only kind of comes together because Spider-Man fights the Fantastic Four, which by the way, they're like, Spidey, we don't make money, dude. Get, get out of here. We don't make money. We're not for profit. And he's like, ah, oh, well, shit kick rocks and he leaves but chameleon's like i'm gonna dress up as spider-man and trick people into thinking he's stealing these secret plans that i'm gonna sell to the iron curtain countries which by the way is treason chameleon's plan was to commit treason to the iron curtain so basically the soviet union he was like i'm gonna sell these plans to the soviet union these very classified documents to the soviet union i'm like dude you must have some serious confidence if you're willing to commit treason especially in the middle of the Cold War, but they would have locked you up, thrown away the key, and poured cement over your cage, bro. There was no way you were getting out of prison on that. But he pretends to be Spider-Man, and he steals the plans and whatnot, and there's this stuff with the cops, like Spider-Man tries to help the cops to find the chameleon. It's, you know, the old switcheroo. It's normal chameleon stuff. But for the time it came out in, and I'm going to be saying this a lot as we get through stuff, where we go now, oh, that's just usual stuff for that character. It's all new back then. And I mentioned it before how I don't consider the Chameleon to be one of those characters. Like, I think of him like, you know, top 10 Spider-Man villains. Chameleon's not even on the list for me. But I think it works for the first villain in this story because they were addressing in the first part of the issue how people are starting to see Spider-Man as kind of like a menace and a villain and kind of a not overall good guy. So having Chameleon dress up as him and play into people's like already kind of seeded fears of Spider-Man is actually really good. Like it was really smart. 
because they didn't introduce the first villain for that story. So they're like, let's make a villain for the second story that plays into the fact that people don't like Spider-Man. Really smart. Like, I genuinely thought that was a great way to do it. And it made for a compelling story because at the end, Peter's like, what's the point of these powers if people are just going to hate me? Like, why should I help people? And he's like, no, I have to help people. I I messed up. I have to do this. Like, it's the right thing to do. And he's very much like, I have to keep being a hero because it's the right thing to do. And the book kind of ends with the Fantastic Four being like, I wonder if we'll have to fight him again. And I think Human Torch goes, ah, no, we won't have to. And Reed's like, I hope so. And then the book just kind of ends. But the point, I would say this first issue, the overarching theme of the issue is Spider-Man's responsibility and his public relations. I would say those are the overarching things. It's like, no matter how bad he gets it, Spider-Man's going to still try and be a hero because he really gets it in these first two stories, just in this first issue alone. He gets impersonated. He fights the FF, which was kind of stupid on his part, but he is still like 16 or whatever. But he has people questioning his motives, but he still decides to be a hero because he knows it's the right thing to do with his powers. And I like that they make Peter out to be this morally set character in terms of like, yeah, they're going to give me shit, but I'm still going to try and be a hero. I might hate it, but I'm still going to try and do the right thing. And I thought that was a good way to really get the character moving and get it set up like, these are his basic morals. This is the shit he's dealing with. Because they mentioned the the trouble with Rent, him being a menace, his relation to other heroes now. Which, by the way, the fight with the FF is, I think, two pages, but it is the cover of the book. So to people who say nowadays, like, oh, you know, covers are just, they're basically just real-life clickbait. They put stuff on the cover that's not really in the book that much. They basically did it here. So much so that FF Annual Number 1 expands upon this fight, which we will be discussing in this episode. So it's not like a new thing of shit on the cover isn't totally what the book's about. But this is Spider-Man's first venture into the larger Marvel Universe because he teams up with the... Well, he doesn't team up with the FF. He meets up with the FF and he fights them. It's the first real expansion of the universe, which I think is really cool. I think that's awesome. Overall, my thoughts on issue one of Amazing Spider-Man are thought it was a really solid issue. It sets up stuff really well. It doesn't overstay its welcome. It knows what it wants to do. It's very solid through and through. And I think generally, it's an enjoyable book. And I would recommend reading it if you're a Spider-Man fan. And I'm probably going to say that about a lot of stuff we read, and I'm probably not going to say it about a lot of stuff we read. I'm probably going to say a lot of stuff don't read. But a lot of people question if they should read the early shit. And some people say, oh, you know, it's written this way, it's boring, blah, blah, blah. But it's still fun. It's got good art because it's Ditko, and it's really fun to read. Anyways, let's move on to our next issue. Mr. Fantastic! As a nice little bonus before we go into issue two, I, of course, wanted to talk about the fight between Spider-Man and the FF in FF Annual number one, because that fight is just an expansion on the fight we get in issue one of Amazing Spider-Man. And it's literally like the whole thing is like 10 pages of them fighting, pretty much. It's written by Stan Lee. It says drawn by Jack Kirby with inks by Ditko. So I'm not sure... If Kirby also did the coloring, because it doesn't say who colored it, it gives us the letterer, which is Ray Holloway, but it just says drawn by Kirby and inked by Ditko. So I'm gonna think that maybe Kirby did the colors as well. I'm not gonna assume that though. They might not have credited the colorist. It might have been Ditko, might have been Kirby. Not totally sure. This is also outside of the cover of AF15. One of the few times I think we see Kirby draw Spider Man which is really cool. I love Kirby's work. 
and his work with Spider-Man is always fantastic the few times it happens. But they specifically say on the opening page of this story in the annual that this was done because it was requested by audiences. So I guess people wrote in and were like, hey, we like that fight between Spider-Man and the Fantastic Four. Can we, like, see more of it? Because it was only, like, three pages. So they expanded it upon the request of the audience. It's pretty much the same fight, just expanded. There were some fun little bits in it that weren't in the original story. So in the original, they do complain about Spider-Man breaking their machine. But when they do it in this, the thing follows it up by immediately ripping up the floorboards and throwing them at Spider-Man. Which I thought was hilarious that they complain about him breaking stuff and then break their own stuff to try and beat him up. And honestly, the whole fight is just kind of ridiculous. I I wrote notes on some of the stuff Spider-Man uses, like an electric web, which... When you see it first, you don't realize until later that it's plugged into the wall to be electrified, which means in the middle of the fight, he plugged it into the wall and then threw it onto the thing because he uses it on the thing. And later in the story, the thing asks Sue, he asks Invisible Woman to unplug it from the wall. And I'm like, wait, you're telling me that the thing couldn't just like flex and rip the thing out of the wall by force? Also, you're telling me that this electrified web is plugged into the wall? That's that's how this gadget works? It, it was just so ridiculous. And what was even more ridiculous is Spider-Man shoots these webs at Mr. Fantastic and he goes, let's see how you stand up to my super glue webs. And my only thought was, they're webs. Why do they need super glue? You've used these to like jump off planes in the first issue and survive. You're telling me that they need super glue to hold Mr. Fantastic together? Why do they need super glue? They're webs. They're already sticky. It, it it was just so funny. And like I said, the whole fight's ridiculous. The human torch throws firebombs, as he calls them. I think they're supposed to be just normal fireballs, but he calls them firebombs at Spider-Man. And Spider-Man makes a bat out of webbing and knocks them back at him. It is just ridiculous. But the entire time... Spider-Man's just like quipping and insulting them and making fun of them. It's a fun little few page story that's a nice little thing added on to that first issue. And it ends the same way with them telling him we don't make money off of this and then him just leaving after calling them names. Do you need to read it? Not really. But I thought I would just throw it in here before issue two is a fun little, hey, they did this. Let's take a look at it. And honestly, it ended up being a fun time because it's just so goofy. But... Let's get on to the next actual issue of Spider-Man, that being Amazing Spider-Man 2. Your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man at your service. On to our next book of the episode, Amazing Spider-Man number 2. Came out in February of 1963. Some facts about the book. This was Ditko's first cover for Spider-Man, as he didn't do Amazing Fantasy 15, because as we know, that was Kirby. And he didn't do number 1 either, because it was the FF on the cover, so they gave that job of the cover to Kirby again. So this is the first Ditko cover. This cover also has arguably the first corner box in comics. Now, published-wise, FF14 and Patsy Walker 106 did come out first, and they both had corner boxes. But Ditko said that he created the corner box for Spider-Man, and Lee liked it so much that they did it for other books as well. 
There's no reason to assume Ditko's making that up or anything. And by all accounts, it seems he did create it. So one could argue that this cover does have the first drawn corner box, but not the first published one. Amazing Spider-Man number two is split up into two stories again. The first one is called Duel to the Death with the Vulture, which has the first appearance of the Vulture, of course. And that's the first story we're going to be talking about. Written by Stan Lee, art by Ditko, letters by John Duffy. So pretty much the same team we've had so far. Some facts about this story before we really start discussing it. This, of course, has the first appearance of the Vulture. This has the first appearance of one of J. Jonah Jameson's publishing companies known as Now Magazine. Now Magazine doesn't really show up a ton. As far as I can tell, it only showed up in like 12 comic books in total. It, it doesn't really exist much, but it's there. And it's the one that's used in this. It also has the first use of the phrase Spider-Sense. We've seen Peter use his Spider-Sense before, but this is the first time that he's called it that. And then he also makes the Spider-Utility Belt, as I'm calling it, because, I don't know, everything Spider-Man makes always starts with Spider, right? But I'll get more into details about the belt and how it plays into the story as we discuss it. So, Duel to the Death with the Vulture is definitely an out-there story. It's a pretty basic criminal story of, like, you know, there's, there's robbery spree and it's this guy doing it, you know, but it's the way it's gone about, right? Because it's just an old dude in a vulture costume. Which, what a weird second villain for a teenage superhero, right? Like, your your book is being marketed to teenagers and kids and stuff. And your thought is, let's give him an old guy in a wing costume. Like, just make him a giant flying bird dude. What a weird one to go with. The, the biggest thing that I found interesting about this story is the stuff that plays into Peter's character more than anything because with the introduction of Now Magazine it's Jonah trying to get photographs of the vulture right now as we know Peter's a photographer but in this original story he's not he's not a photographer he doesn't have a camera he's never really done that kind of stuff but he knows that he can make money doing it and he knows that with his Spider-Man outfit and his powers he can get photos that other people can't so he becomes a photographer solely to make the money and his camera was Uncle Ben's. So he he goes after the vulture, not even necessarily to, like, stop him, right? He more so goes after him at first to get pictures. Not to stop the robberies, but to get pictures. And Peter is just absolutely kind of awful in this when it comes to fighting. Like, he has no idea how to fight. Or really any spatial awareness despite the spider sense. Because we see the spider sense alert him that vulture is flying by... But then Vulture immediately gets the drop on him. The Spider-Sense just does nothing. And Vulture hits him so hard it knocks Peter out. And then Vulture dumps Peter into a water tower. He's like, I'm just gonna let Spider-Man drown. I'm like, holy shit. He really went from like, Spider-Man's a bother to I'm going to kill Spider-Man in like, three panels. Like, he just dumps an unconscious Spider-Man into a water tower. Like, opens up the top and just dumps him in. He's like, he's gonna drown and die. Have fun. I'm like, holy shit. What the fuck? Like, I, like, Vulture's, like, robbing people, right? Like, that's all he's doing. But then he's just, like, gonna straight up commit murder. Like, he goes from robbing jewels to, I'm gonna commit murder now. It, it just leads to, like, a series of events that is just interesting, to say the least. Peter's out of webbing, because he's like, ah, shit, I forgot to, I forgot to put extra webbing in. I can't web out of this. And he's like, and the wall's too sticky for me to climb it. Even though, like, Last issue, it's clear that, like, it's kind of energy-based. I don't know. Peter's powers are still weird at the moment, because I guess they're not really sure fully what they're doing with him yet. And then he's like, oh, I know what to do. I have the proportional strength of a spider. So he swims to the bottom of the water tower, kneels, like, crouches down under the water, and then 
pushes himself up with such force, he rockets out the top of the thing. When, honestly, it probably would have been easier for him to just punch a hole in the damn thing and crawl out, but I, I don't know. Instead, he's like, I'm just going to rocket myself upwards, which leads him to being like, okay, I need to keep webbing around. And so that goes into him building the utility belt as well as a device to stop the vultures flying, which he figures out is magnetic because there's no sound. I, I don't know. I'm not a science whiz, so I'll just, I'll take Peter's word for it. He's a smart guy, but he builds a utility belt that we've seen before in more modern comics that, you know, fits under his shirt and he can, you know, keep extra webbing there. He says he's going to make a small camera to keep there so he can get pictures. But he brings photos to Jonah, who pays him. And then he's like, I'm going to get more photos when Vulture does this robbery that's coming up that he's telling everyone he's going to do for some reason. But Vulture does it to trick people because instead of coming from the air, he he goes through the sewer. I, I don't know, dude. It's weird. Vulture is just one of those characters that I'm like, what is happening in this issue? This guy can, I guess because it's magnets is why he can fly in the sewers. I don't know. I, I genuinely don't know. But he comes out of the sewers to steal the jewels and then drops back down and flies away into the sewer. And Peter's looking for him as Spider-Man. And he wants more pictures so he can sell them to Jonah. And Vulture tries to get the drop on him again, but Peter senses him and ducks out of the way, but he still falls. And Vulture's like, the air is my thing. Like, the air is my territory. You can't stop me, Spider-Man. And of course, Spider-Man stops him. He uses his device to turn off the magnetism and then just leaves Vulture plummeting to his death. I mean, Vulture doesn't die. Spider-Man is like, oh, he's just going to spiral out of control and that'll slow him down. I'm like, oh, okay. If that's how you think the physics of that works. But he gets more pictures of Vulture and he sells them to Jonah and he gets home with the money. And he says to Aunt May, I paid the rent for the next year and I'm also going to get you a new dishwasher. Now, I wanted to figure out how much fucking money did Jonah just give this kid, right? So I looked at the average rent in New York in 1962 because I couldn't find Queens specifically, specifically the place that they live, which is, uh, I have it written down here, which is Forest Hills. But the average rent in New York for a house, as far as I could tell, was $71, right? The average rent now, way more. But anyways, the average rent in New York for a house, as far as I could find in 1962 was $71, 71 to 74, depending on the number you find, which means that Jonah gave him $852 plus more for the dishwasher or kitchen appliances, as Peter puts it. So I'm going to guess he gave him about $1,000, which back then, a lot of money, decent amount of money. The fact that Peter could pay off the year's rent and still have extra, insane. I don't know what place pays that much for photographs nowadays, much less then. I doubt anyone paid that much then for photographs. Like, holy shit. But like I said earlier, this issue kind of delves a bit more into Peter's character because you see the fact that like, he's not doing this to be a hero at first. He's still doing it for money. Like the main reason he really stops the chameleon is because the chameleon was like giving him a bad name. That's really what it feels like. And in this story, he only really tries to stop the vulture because of the money. It's like, I can get money taking pictures doing this. So I'm definitely interested to see when the change to Peter being this like, moral compass character comes along in the earlier stories, or at least in the earlier years compared to, like, the 80s when he kind of became that moral compass. But only time will tell on that, I suppose. The second story in this issue, The Uncanny Threat of the Terrible Tinkerer, is... I I don't even know how to describe it beyond batshit. Like, it, it is absolutely insane. 
before we get into discussing why it's absolutely insane, written by Lee, drawn by Ditko, and lettering done by Art Simak. But I, I just, I don't even know what to say about this story. The story starts with Peter getting a weekend job with an electrical engineer or something who's also a professor, and Peter's going to help him out, and he goes to pick up a radio form from this guy called The Tinkerer. Like, that's the name of the shop, it's like The Tinkerer's Tinkser, fuck, I don't know, dude. But that's not the point. Anyways, Peter points out how this guy looks weird and blah, 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 and how he finds it odd that he charges so little for doing repairs, and it turns out he charges so little because he's working with aliens to put monitoring devices into different gadgets for people. Just aliens in the second issue. We're going from a guy in a wingsuit to aliens. That's, that's this issue. Wingsuit, old guy, aliens. Now you think, you know, the tinkerer, he's, he's helping these aliens. He's a human too. Nope. Twist. He's also an alien. How do we find that out? Because Spider-Man rips his face off. A mask, but you know, also kind of his face, and he's just holding it at the end of the issue. He's just, like, looking at it. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on? It, the the issue is just, like, the back half of the issue is just bonkers. They, they lock Spider-Man in a cage, or not a cage, like, a dome of glass, and then they're like, we're gonna suck all the air out of it. And the way to suck the air out of it is they just put holes in it. They just open it up, basically. They open small holes in it. I'm like, that's not how you drain air out of something. And then he shoots his webs through the hole, and gets himself out. I'm like, these aliens are fucking incompetent. They're trying to invade Earth, and they can't even do it well. We do get to see, though, how Spider-Man's web shooters work. Like, they show a diagram of that. But otherwise, the back half of this issue is absolutely bonkers insane. I did enjoy it, though. I thought it was really fun. I thought it was a fun little story with a one-off villain that was just insanity. Insanity from beginning to end. Overall, I think issue two of Amazing Spider-Man is a fun time with a lot of wacky stories. The art by Ditko was dynamic and very engaging. Lee's writing was, of course, Lee's writing. It's a fun time that I I don't love it or hate it. I think a lot of Lee's later writing is better. I think my favorite, as of recording this right now, my favorite Stan Lee writing is in the Silver Surfer story he did with Mobius back in the day. And this is a far cry from that, let me tell you. His his writing over time, I think, gets so much better, but I think that's also because of how the medium changes, and he changed as a writer with it. And he also wasn't writing as much by then. But overall, I think Amazing Spider-Man 2 was a really fun story. I thought all the issues we read for this episode were fun. ASM 1 was a setup for various things to come with J. Jonah Jameson, John Jameson, stuff like that, Spider-Man's media relations... As well as, you know, how Peter is going to be as Spider-Man. FF Annual 1 built upon the fight we saw before and gave us more of those Spider-Man quips. Issue 2 definitely gave us more of the quippy Peter when it comes to dealing with his peers. Not so much the quippy Spider-Man, but the quick-to-retort and quick-to-speak-back Peter when it comes to dealing with people of his own age. But that about wraps us up for this week. Next week, we're going to be discussing issues three through five of Amazing Spider-Man. We're going to probably be doing about three issues a week going on. I know last week I said we were going to do a bit more than three, but we only ended up doing three issues. That's because I spoke with someone in between recording the first episode and starting on the second, and they recommended, 
making it a little shorter. They thought the time length that we had for the first episode was a good one. So I'm going to try and keep it around there, keep episodes under an hour. If I looked at more issues, we'd probably end up going around an hour. But I do think the shorter episodes will kind of work well. And we'll have longer episodes sometimes when we discuss more stories and stuff. But like I said, next episode is going to be Amazing Spider-Man 3, 4, and 5. If you want to write into the show at all or give any feedback, you can write in at with a hyphen cast at gmail.com. You can also follow the show on Twitter at with a hyphen cast. And I also have a website called isolatedcomics.com, which has a link to the Twitter and the email, as well as the episodes directly on that page as well. But let me know your thoughts on the issues that we read for this week, any feedback you have about the show, all that kind of stuff. I'll come up with a better outro, hopefully by the next episode, that I'll say every week. But until then, stay beautiful, stay safe, and stay lovely. And, of course, stay amazing. Gotta run! Or swing! You know what I mean.